So you probably are aware by now that we use Anchor.fm here on this podcast for COVID-19 PPC. And I wanted to tell you about Anchor.fm because this is actually the second uh, podcast hosting software I've used. And um, I really like it. I love how easy it is to use. I love the fact that it's free. And they have so many tools here like music and all these different options that help you record and edit your podcast either from your phone or your PC or your computer. And then Anchor distributes your podcast for you so that it can be on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. And then also you can even make money from your podcast with minimum, with no minimum listenership. And it's all you need to make a podcast in one place. So if you're new to podcasting and you're interested in um, getting started, I recommend Anchor.fm. So what you can do is download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor.fm to get started um, that's my recommendation. And, um, you know, after almost a year of podcasting, I'm really glad I found Anchor just recently. It just makes things so much easier. And, uh, yeah, come check out anchor.fm. Welcome to COVID-19, Public Health Policy and Culture. I'm Dr. April Moreno, presenting information from various sources about the COVID-19 pandemic from public health policy and cultural perspectives. We will be sharing international accounts from policy, public health response, and even personal experiences firsthand about living in this era of COVID-19. Welcome to this episode of COVID-19, Public Health Policy and Culture. I'm Dr. April Moreno, and today it is the nearing the end of June, and we're currently at about 2.4 million cases reported of COVID-19 in the United States at the moment. And the biggest news here was that we are seeing these huge numbers of cases, record numbers of cases across the country. There are many reasons for that. Meanwhile, there are reopenings that happened this week at various locations and businesses. So we've got reopenings, but then we've also got more cases than ever for daily records. So yeah, something's got to change. Something has got to change. I hope you've been enjoying our episodes of COVID-19 Public Health Policy and Culture. It's been wonderful as we've reached 500 downloads and we are small but mighty and we are continuing to grow and I really appreciate the various speakers that we've brought in to talk about COVID-19 in various locations. I've got a few more lined up that are uh, in process of being edited and then ready to publish on a weekly basis. I'd love to know what you think of the podcast so far. Has this podcast been beneficial for you? Have you found it informative? I'd love to hear feedback. The background of this podcast I mentioned in episode one, but basically it's providing a perspective in terms of multicultural perspectives, international perspectives, intercultural perspectives about the public health policies, as well as the response and the culture of various countries, various cities, locations, how the public is responding to the virus pandemic. Culture is such an interesting word. I want to talk about that briefly. When you ask someone to define culture, you likely won't get the same 
answer. It's something, even as someone who's been a cultural anthropologist, I had trouble explaining exactly what culture is. And one definition is just really the way a group of people collectively believe in their values, the way they perceive life, and the way they interact with each other. So that's one definition of culture that is at the top of my mind at the moment. My definition of culture will probably change tomorrow, but it is just basically the way people think collectively. And in this episode, we are going to actually hear about the importance of communicating culture in a way that you're helping to create a culture from a national level. And this is actually one of, in my opinion, the most important episodes that we have because we are speaking to somebody from New Zealand who has experience in what it's like to live in a zero case nation, a COVID-free nation for quite a number of days, 24 days with no new cases of coronavirus reported in New Zealand. And then... After we completed this interview, June 16th, two new cases that were tested in terms of arrivals into the country. So this is something that Dr. Michelle Dickinson does talk about in this episode, about what to do next, about how to continue to work with other countries. Can they relax the borders to continue with commerce and business? What the bubble of safety has looked like? Hopefully our future of what the pandemic, what it's going to look like after we managed to address and deal with the pandemic. So I'm really excited to share this episode with you. We are growing here at the COVID-19 Public Health Policy and Culture podcast, and we are seeking collaborations in terms of sponsorships, advertising, promotions. Reach out to me or contact us through our website at anchor.fm slash COVID-19PPC donate to the podcast so that we can continue to grow it and have it reach out to more people around the world. Understanding the pandemic from a public health perspective, how public health is addressed in different countries for pandemic response, how we can look at policy, how is policy designed to benefit the public, how is that process done in different countries, especially with response to the pandemic, and then culture, One of my favorite topics as well. How do people around the world perceive disease, death, collective participation in pandemic response? How do they relate to one another? What language are people using to describe the virus? And how is it affecting their everyday lives in different parts of the world? These are the types of conversations that this podcast is designed to include. And I am excited to continue to build it and hope that you will consider reaching out to me to discuss how we can partner to grow our podcast and to grow awareness of your business or your organization as well. I hope you enjoy this episode number 16 on how to live in a COVID-free nation. In this episode, we're actually going to be getting a window possibly into the future, hopefully, of what things can look like from New Zealand. We're speaking today to Dr. Michelle Dickinson. She's a nanoengineer and she's based in New Zealand and she's going to be sharing with us what's been going on in regards to COVID-19 in New Zealand and what we can learn from the policies, the culture, the public health measures that have been enacted in New Zealand 
that we could learn from around the world during this time. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I think this is a really crucial conversation with information that we could all learn from at this time in case we have questions about how to approach this. Thank you so much, Dr. Michelle Dickinson, for being here today. Please introduce yourself to the podcast. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Michelle. I'm a nanotechnologist and I've been living in New Zealand for about 12 years now. I used to live in the US. And yeah, I was a professor and an academic of engineering here for about a decade. And recently, I've set up my own startup to help educate people about STEM, science, technology, engineering, and maths, kids, adults. And I've been really busy trying to help explain the virus to people very recently. I think we have the perfect person to speak to today because you can talk to us about the virus, what's going on. I still have so many questions even about COVID-19, the virus itself. You know, people are going to restaurants now. They're going back to, today my yoga studio reopened. And I have so many questions about the restrooms safety with eating in the restaurant with no mask on. I'm so interested in hearing what you have to say about COVID-19 in terms of the, the particles, <laughs> the science of mm -hmm. it as well. But please tell us, how are you doing at this time? Look, we, we are feeling incredibly guilty in New Zealand because we are doing amazingly. So we have, as of today, eliminated COVID-19. We have no more coronavirus and haven't had it for 23 days in New Zealand. Oh my and goodness. we have gone we've gone totally back to normal. So we had our first big sports event um, over the weekend. It was rugby. And we had a sellout 46,000 people in a stadium together. No masks, just hanging out. Everything's back to normal. Our schools have been back for two weeks. Our shops are back. Um, and so we are living this really surreal life of just normal life while watching on the news, obviously, that you know COVID is still rampant in lots of places. And so the only thing that is different in New Zealand is, is our borders are still closed. We are very strict on that. We have a 14-day policy on quarantine, mandatory quarantine, if you come into the borders. And, and I think that's the only way that you would notice. If you're trying to travel, that's when you notice that something is still up. Otherwise, it's like real, real life again. Yeah. Wow. It's like a dream. So tell us a little bit more about what's going on over there in New Zealand. And um, we can talk about the policies, perhaps, the public health mm. measures, the things that you, the decisions that were made so that you were able to see the end of this virus. So I've been quite involved with some of the government work here. Um, and so I've been able to see firsthand uh, not only what we did, but what other countries did. Now, we were lucky. We, we got to witness what happened to Italy before we made any big decisions. And I think Italy was a turning point for us. We were very aware of being close to Asia too, um, that something was going on in Asia. But once it hit Italy, we realized that this was going to be big and we had to do something. It's really hard to close borders. You know, it's really hard. I mean, everybody who did it, it's, it's, nobody's ever done that before. Mm -hmm. But what New Zealand did is said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to be really strict. We are going to communicate to the public. So our prime minister and our minister of health um, or our head of health said every day at one o'clock, we are going to talk to you on all channels and we're going to tell you what's going on and we're going to be totally transparent. Number one, that was really good because everybody in the public knew at one o'clock, they knew where to go to understand what was going on. So communication was crucial. The government and the prime minister brought on communicators like myself and many others to explain to the public on all of the news channels, what is the virus? What can people do? Really easy steps. What do I do today? What should I do tomorrow? And then we brought in an alert system. We have four levels of our alert system. And we were able to say to the public, hey, this is what the four levels are. This is what they mean. We went to a warning level, which was warning level two. We said, we're currently at level two. Let you know that we're probably going to go to level four very soon, probably in two or three days. So here's time to prepare. 
This is what level four means. This is what's gonna be closed. Here's how you don't need to panic buy. All supermarkets will remain open and there will be plenty of food the whole time during lockdown. So don't panic buy, just get your things together, get what you need over the lockdown period. And we think it's gonna take four weeks because we looked at the science and if we can break transmission for them. What that meant is it was really clear how long lockdown was gonna last and what you could do in it. And we had a really strict lockdown. No takeouts, no Uber, no deliveries. The only thing that opened were pharmacies and supermarkets. Everything else shut. And you weren't allowed to go out of your house apart from maybe one walk a day for exercise. And that happened for four weeks. And it was really clear every day, the communication was, this is hard, please don't go outside. But if you don't go outside after four weeks, we shouldn't be able to get rid of it. So if everybody just plays the same game and everybody is struggling in the same way, then we will make sure that it works. And one of the things that happened is we got a business subsidy which said, hey, we know that you can't trade right now. So the government is gonna give pretty much every business that needs it money to pay their employees at 80%. And we're gonna give you that money in a day. And so the thing with governments is they're very bureaucratic. And this is the first time, I run a business, this is the first time where we applied for the subsidy on the Wednesday and it was in our business bank account on the Thursday, which meant that I knew I could pay all of my staff over lockdown and there were no questions asked. And that was one of the most important things knowing that there was financial security during this time meant that we did our four weeks and we just, you know, got to know each other in lockdown and couldn't do anything, but then came out of it with a really no transmission between people because of the lockdown. And yeah, then spent two weeks just making sure there wasn't any transmission. We went to a level three, which was a, things are opening, but not very much. And, you know, only one person allowed in the store at a time, all of those things. And then we came out of that maybe two weeks ago and yeah, we're still totally clear. Can you tell us a bit about the culture and the response? What were people's feelings about following these guidelines and these rules? They were rules for sure. And, you know, we're a Western society. We're not used to being told what we can and can't do. And so what was really clever, I think, was the constant communication. Every day at one o'clock, this is what we're doing and this is why. And here's the data. Here's how many cases. Here's where the clusters are. Here's what we're doing about them. Here's who we've contact traced them to. Being able to see why we were doing what we were doing and follow the data and seeing every day, you know, the cases starting to drop, the spread starting to drop that you saw. New Zealand has a small population, we're 5 million, but we called ourselves the team of 5 million. And once you felt like you were on a team, you didn't want to let the team down. And once you could see the score of the team, like it almost became like a sports thing. Mm-hmm. In that every day the prime minister said, come on team of New Zealand, this is where we're at, this is our score. We only need to do this tomorrow and the score will come down and we'll have less cases. So feeling like you were all in it together was, was actually really important. And again, those constant communications, one o'clock every day, you knew that the prime minister was going to stand up and tell you what was going on. And you could access the data. You could go onto the website and you could see it and you could follow it and you could see every single case, the age of the person, where it was. And it made it much easier to feel like you weren't just being told what to do, but you were being able to be brought on this journey. During the worst of it, in terms of rates, in terms of deaths, what types of numbers were you seeing in New Zealand? Right at the beginning, we probably had, in the first couple of weeks, we had over a thousand cases. And as soon as we got even close to looking like it was going to be a thousand cases, we shut down. And we had community transmission. So we had cases of people where we just didn't know where they were getting. We were able to trace a lot of them. And then we got cases that we just couldn't tell where they got it from. As soon as we knew there was spread and community transmission that wasn't contact traceable, we decided to shut down the country because mm-hmm. that's where we knew it was out of control and we knew it was an exponential growth. And we knew that if we didn't do something today, it was going to go crazy. 
So in total, I think we've now had 22 deaths. Um, the majority of those have actually been in rest home clusters. We had a couple of rest homes that sadly weren't able to reduce the transmission from the public to the rest home people. And so we haven't had any deaths of young people or people who didn't have a pre-existing condition. And most of those deaths were connected to infections very early on before lockdown. But yeah, we as soon as we got to about a thousand infections and transmissions that we just couldn't trace, we closed everything down. So tell us a little bit in terms of what could have been improved or what could still be improved? Is there anything that you still see that could have also been improved? I think we're in this giant Petri dish where every country is doing things very differently. And we're always going to look at it with hindsight and say, oh, we could have done it like Sweden or we could have done it like the UK. New Zealand is in a really unique situation in that we are COVID free, but we cannot trade. We cannot move. And so we're in this luxurious bubble. We grow enough food for ourselves. You know, we're self-sufficient as a country and a nation, but our economy is going to be hit really hard because we cannot trade with our partners. Rather than look at what we could do differently or not, I think we need to think about what we're going to do now because the U.S. is a great example. And Sweden is looking like an example where infection rates become so high that you actually have a quite a high proportion of your population who may have immunity at least for six months to a year. Nobody in New Zealand has immunity. We are almost at a greater risk if, if something were to happen, if the borders were to open, because we are totally shielded from the virus. So I wouldn't say that we should do anything differently. I think people make decisions based on the evidence that they have, and they were hard decisions to make. And so I wouldn't want to say, well, we should have done this. I think we did a great job and we can see it because we have our freedoms today. I think what's going to be really interesting is to look at how differently the world has reacted. And now how as a global economy, we may have to cut off certain countries who have no immunity, while other countries who are going to keep the virus rampant are going to keep trading with each other. And I think the next stage is going to be really interesting, especially for what we call a green state like New Zealand in that we are totally free of the virus. And there are some others, Vietnam, Thailand, you know, there's a few pockets of us who don't know what to do next, maybe with, with nations that have the virus. I think the next questions I would like to ask, if it's okay, is a little bit more about how we can communicate to the world in terms of awareness and how the rest of us can learn from your example. I have so many questions still, and there is like no clear answer. So there's questions about masks. Just like a couple of days ago, someone put this thing up on social media that they don't understand the effectiveness of mask wearing, and they want the freedom to go out and not wear a mask if they choose not to. Could you tell us a little bit about, <laughs> as a nanoengineer, um, how yeah. effective, how important it can be to be wearing a mask right now? Yeah, these are great questions. And look, I feel a little bit lazy because during New Zealand's crisis, I was making YouTube videos explaining these things almost every day. Mm -hmm. And now that we're COVID free, it's not a, nobody's questioning me anymore. So I'm not making these videos anymore. So I apologize to the rest of the world. But I do have a YouTube channel with a lot of questions like this that I've answered. Masks is really interesting. And the challenge with science and the challenge with COVID-19 is that we don't know. We as scientists, what we do is we run experiments. And when we have enough data, we say, hey, the evidence points towards dot, dot, dot. The challenge with this type of coronavirus is it's so new. We haven't been able to run lots of controlled studies. Humans are very complicated. The virus is very complicated. Transmission between people is complicated. And so you will hear different things about masks. And 
they will all be true scientifically based on the study that was done. And so what we need to do is more testing. And so that's why this is really challenging for science because we can't our hand on our heart say, you must do this because. We can say, well, this guy ran this experiment and this happened and person over here ran this experiment and this happened. And so we can maybe guess that this is happening. So mask is really interesting. So why would you wear a mask? You would wear a mask. Mostly you would wear a mask to stop droplets that you would have that were infectious and spreading onto others. That was the original design. They're not really designed to protect you from incoming viruses. They're to, they're to stop you from infecting other people. We know that this virus mostly spreads through droplets. And those droplets come if you're infected from you coughing or sneezing or even singing in front of people. And so if everybody wears a mask, it means that if you maybe are asymptomatic, meaning that you have the virus, but you don't have symptoms, or if you do have symptoms and you decide to go outside, that you can hopefully stop the spread to others. Now, there's some evidence also showing that if you wear a mask, if somebody does sneeze on you, for example, who is infected, you are less likely to get it than if you didn't have a mask, obviously, because it's a barrier in the way. So we do know that masks can reduce the transmission, but they're not foolproof. And we know that masks only work if you use them properly, because if you touch the front of a mask and you have COVID on your hands, because maybe you've touched a surface that somebody has sneezed on and you don't remove them in a way that doesn't touch your face, then you can still infect yourself. And so the argument around masks was, Number one, we wanted to make sure there was enough PPE or protective equipment for health workers because we know that when infection rates get high, protecting our medical workers is so important. They are at the most risk. It's very clear that the more exposed you are to a virus, the more likely you are to probably die from it. So when everybody was buying masks at the beginning, our, our crucial emergency workers couldn't get hold of them. Now, it looks like the supply chain is a bit more stable now, which is why everybody might want to have a mask because we're not then taking it from our emergency workers. And yes, wearing a mask will reduce you risking affection to anybody else, but also potentially risk you getting infected. But not enough that scientists can say it's foolproof. And the second you cast doubt, people say, oh, well, you know, I don't need it. As long as everybody else is wearing it, then people who are infected just shouldn't go out, all of those things. Mm-hmm. And it, it's uncomfortable, right? It, people are looking for excuses not to do it. It ruins the way you communicate with people. We communicate using our facial expressions. And so people feel that if they don't have to wear it, and science doesn't say 100% that they do, then they make their own decisions. And I think it's the challenge of science as well. We can never say 100% this will fix it. We say, hey, this will reduce your risk. And that's a scientist's way of saying this will fix it. But because we don't say it like that, lots of people in the public who don't understand the scientific method go, oh, well, that's a loophole for me not to have to. Mm -hmm. So yeah, masks are, we know in in places like the US where there is high transmission Mm -hmm. will definitely help to reduce the spread of transmission. But scientists won't 100% say that it will prevent it. And that's where the confusion lies, I think. The other question I have that, I'm not getting answers about is about public restrooms. So I think it was the World Health Organization earlier on that was saying to avoid using public restrooms because of the risk of being infected by using these facilities. I would like to hear your perspective on that because we have a lot of restaurants that have reopened here in the United States. We've got the yoga studios, a lot of the gyms have reopened. So people are going to need to use a restroom at some point. What are your um, views on 
public restrooms and safety. <laughs> yeah, look, if you've got to go, you've got to go, right? But the reason why public restrooms are a higher risk, one of the things we know is that the virus can be in fecal matter. So it can be in your poop. And we do know that when you go to a bathroom, if you flush, sometimes some of that fecal matter can be spread just by the flush in the spring. So there's one risk. We also know that the virus tends to stay in the air longer in places that are not well ventilated. And most public restrooms tend to be quite closed off. They don't ventilate well and, and are quite small, confined rooms, meaning that potentially the risk of a virus being in the air there would be longer because you have lots of people coming in and out and the air being quite stagnant. And so public restrooms would be potentially a higher risk compared to a windy room with the windows open up that have access to the outdoors. And elevators are the same. They're these closed, confined rooms that they don't have much ventilation. So that risk is greater. But if you were to wear a mask and you wash your hands on your way out and you make sure you don't touch the door handle with your hands on the way out, then if you have to go to the bathroom, don't feel like you can't go. But, you know, you can see how scientists would say it's a greater risk because there are some risk factors there that you wouldn't find in other places. I understand that in the U.S. you have to trade and therefore restaurants are opening. I also believe it's why you're, if you look at your wave on a curve, you guys aren't dropping the wave. Your wave is consistent. You're just stagnant at the rate of infections. And I think that is because you are doing things like opening places like public restrooms and restaurants and allowing the virus to hop from person to person. That's all the virus wants to do is go from one person to the next. And the only way you can stop that is by stopping people from being close to each other. Yeah, I just drove past the beach yesterday and it's it looks like normal times. <laughs> I didn't see many masks. And I suppose the assumption could be that because they're out in an open space, that it's safer and it's probably safer, but you know, you still have these groups of people that are spending time out there together. So I just don't, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, it is safer at the beach to be spaced apart than it would be in a public restroom, for sure. But I also think you tried lockdown and it didn't work. And then because there weren't such strict rules, you didn't fix a problem like New Zealand did. And, and the mental health side of just feeling trapped and being a social species. I, I mean, I get why people are out. I understand that it's important to, to have contact with people. But I think what's going to happen is you guys are going to have to live with the virus with the consequences of not locking down really carefully at the beginning and not closing borders really carefully at the beginning. And it's not just the US, the UK is in a very similar situation. And I think your new normal will be that, yes, you will have infections for, for a long period of time. If I could ask just one more question regarding safety, the foods. So you mentioned that New Zealand uh, talked about the rule was no takeout, no delivery when it yeah. was at that level four. Could you talk about whether the safety or the, the risks involved with ordering food delivery services? So we were really clear that we were not allowed to do any takeout or delivery. And the reason was scientifically obvious. If you have somebody who is infected, who happens to be a food worker, they could potentially infect thousands of people in their one shift. Right? If you're making burgers and you are touching the burgers or making the fries and you have a thousand people come through your drive-thru, it's easy for you to infect a thousand people through the food. And so we just didn't allow that. And for that reason. And so, you know, the challenge with people who are food workers, people who work in restaurants is they do come into contact with people's food every day. And we know that the virus is spread by it being able to get into your body through your mouth or through your nose. And so food items suddenly become a really important source of the transmission of the virus, especially colder food items. 
So things like sandwiches, things that aren't cooked to a high temperature. And so we were really strict on that for that scientific reason. You know, we have to be really careful when it comes to food preparation. We've seen it with E. coli and other things. We know how food and unwashed lettuce or infected lettuce can take out huge amounts of people all over the country. And so, yeah, we made that choice. And I think it's a good choice. And that was the science behind it. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the culture. You know, the United States culture, and it could be similar in in other countries as well, where the virus is being well managed. Maybe this isn't the sole reason why we're struggling, but in the United States, there are a lot of people who are really into believing in their freedoms and their liberties and things like that. And the concept of the team is not as big as the concept of people's individual freedom. And, you know, we've had those protests. We've had protests in, I think, Michigan and mm-hmm. um, different, even in San Diego, we had some protests about a month ago where people were saying they want to be free to go get haircuts and things like that. I would like to hear in terms of culture, what could we be doing to connect with people who are in this other way of thinking, this other perspective about freedoms? Is there a way we can have the same language and the same level of communication and agreement at some point. Yeah, look, and we, New Zealand, we have people who have, you know, more extreme views about they didn't want to play ball. They were like, all my rights are being taken away. And and those views are fair. If you feel what you feel, then it's okay to feel that. Mm -hmm. And I feel like what we did here is explain We want you to have your freedoms and the way that you can be as free as possible is just to play by this game for four weeks. That's all we're asking. If after four weeks, this doesn't work, we'll renegotiate. Mm -hmm. And and I think people said, okay, four weeks I'll do because I want my freedom back. And now they're free and they're not complaining. But I think it was really clear that people on those extreme views, we had to say, I know you want your freedoms and yes, you want the right to do whatever you like, but this is why us taking these freedoms away for a little bit will actually make you more freer than anybody else in the world. It was a bit of a negotiation. And I feel like we're always going to have to negotiate. One of the challenges that I've seen as a scientist is during lockdown, there were a lot of conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. So I've had to fight the 5G causes this, the coronavirus doesn't exist. It was just created by the government. You know, I've I've been on the scientific end of those and trying to explain why they're not there. And one of the things I have seen is a distinct lack of scientific literacy. If you don't understand how science works, you don't have to believe in it because it doesn't make any sense to you. And I have seen a correlation between those who don't believe in the virus and those who have not engaged with science for whatever reason in their lives. And so I guess what I've seen and and what I've dedicated my life to is a way of helping number one, young people really engage with how the scientific process works and also helping adults who may not have felt scientifically literate growing up to have a way and through my YouTube videos to be able to go, oh, I understand that in a way that I understand and I can do something about. So those views are always going to be extreme. I think the protests are challenging, right? Because People in America feel like they have the right to do all of these things. Um, But a lot of them were spreading misinformation about the virus and the fact that the virus wasn't all of the things that the scientists said it was. And so this mistrust between scientists, between governments, and we've seen it now. I, I don't know how Bill Gates has got such a bum deal, but there's a lot of stuff going on around some of the very great work that he did originally in funding research. Mm-hmm. Um, this world that we live in where social media now is your news and the bubble that you're in in social media 
can control the view of the world that you get to see and it. it's not a fair view of the world and it's extreme in both directions. I think it's a challenge we're going to have, I think, for the foreseeable future of our social media is a big part of our lives. Yeah, and it was sad to see the demonstrations in the US during what should have been a time of... And the evidence was that some of those demonstrators brought back the virus to their rural communities. But I, I think that's just humans. I think that's innately who we are. And sadly, I think with poor communication and poor understanding of the virus, which is, which is a long-term issue, um, we're always going to get that. So it sounds to me that there's a lot of that communication aspect, the concept of unity, finding a unifying message. I mean, the power of PR, even the power of marketing mm-hmm. would be so mm-hmm. much in terms of convincing people to believe a certain way, the power of the media. There are and were and still can be ways for us to gain control of the virus yeah. if we can use these tools. And the power is really important here. It's about making the public feel empowered. It's not about saying you have nothing, we're going to tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. It's about saying, here is the data, here is what we're doing. We are giving you the power to make a choice every day mm-hmm. to help not just you, but your grandparents and the elderly in your neighborhood and those people who you know are at risk. It's actually empowering you as a citizen, not saying we have all the power and we're forcing this on you. And I think the conversation was very different. Please tell us about your social media links. You mentioned that you have some videos on YouTube. How can we connect with you so that we can learn more about the pandemic and how to protect ourselves and our communities? I have a YouTube channel. It's just under my name, Dr. Michelle Dickinson. And I run a company called Nano Girl. And so we have a children's voice within that. And so if you go to the Nano Girl um, page, nanogirlslab.com, we have a whole bunch of coronavirus videos for kids. One of the things we thought was really important is that rather than parents not tell their children about the virus because it's scary. Instead, we communicate the science to the children so they feel empowered themselves to be able to do that. So I have a lot of videos for children and for families who want to be able to have these conversations at home without petrifying their children because they don't need to know everything, but also while giving them the tools to know, oh, this is what the virus is, this is what it does, this is how it's different from a cold virus, and these are the things that I can do as a seven-year-old to feel like I have control over my environment. Because a lot of time the children were getting really stressed because the parents were making all of these decisions for them, but not telling them why. And so we were able to use animations and I have a little virus puppet that I use to just explain what it looks like and how it attaches and what children can do. So under our Nano Girl brand or under my name, Dr. Michelle Dickinson, there's plenty on YouTube available. And then we've created homeschooling platforms. So we have a whole online homeschooling thing because we know that one of the things that teachers dropped first in distance learning was science. And yet I've had this conversation about how scientific literacy is so important. And so we've created these homeschooling science and engineering channels that only use stuff you find in your recycle bin. Try and make sure that those parents who still want their children to get scientific hands-on labs and building experiments can do that. Because I think now is a crucial time to make sure that we don't drop science just because it's hard to do at a distance, but we keep it going. So at least the next generation hopefully can understand the scientific process because there will be another pandemic. We know there will be another pandemic. This is going to happen again. Mm-hmm. And we hopefully can go in with more knowledge this time about what to do, what to do quickly. And hopefully if this generation study more science or at least understand it more, they can make those decisions for themselves much more quickly. 
And so that was nanogirllabs.com. Yep, that's us. Or just Google nanogirl and I will come up or the channel will come. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Michelle Dickinson, for joining us today. I really appreciate it. And congratulations again on becoming a COVID-19 free nation. Thank you. It's great chatting to you. And I'm going to feel very guilty now and go out and have some fun. (laughs) 